Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. We love movies with Gordon Hayden. This film blew me away. So that's against the rules, and you can't sit with us. Did we just become best friends? Yep. Hasta la vista, baby. And the winner is... We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden. Spin. Hello, and you are very welcome along to We Love Movies with me, Gordon Hayden. Normal service resumes this week. The unbearable weight of massive talent is the title of Nick Cage's latest flick. And you know what? He's been on a bit of a career resurgence of late as good old Nicolas Cage. And I am really intrigued to see this particular film because he essentially is playing a version of himself. Like the film's title, this one has a bit of a bonkers premise to it. We'll be getting into that in great detail, along with catching up with some of the movies that we missed last week, like The Northman and The Secrets of Dumbledore. We'll be giving you our thoughts on that because it's had a bit of a, a tepid box office run at the moment. We'll be chatting about that. So lots to come on this week's We Love Movies. We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden on Spin. Now on We Love Movies, we are going to take a look at what is playing in cinemas. And I am joined by Olivia Fahey and Chris Wasser. I I am told there is differing, uh, there's a difference of opinion when it comes to the first film, Out of the Traps. And that film in question is The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, which stars Nicolas Cage and Pedro Pascal of Narcos and Mandalorian fame. And Sharon Horgan, by all accounts, uh, pops in there too. It's an absolutely mad premise altogether. Chris, I'll let you take it away and try and condense this into a nutshell. What's going on in this? Because Nicolas Cage is kind of playing, or he is playing a version of himself. Yeah, Nicolas Cage is essentially playing a fictionalized version of himself. So take everything you know, love, and are just bewildered by when it comes to Nicolas Cage and dial it up to 11. And that's kind of what we're dealing with here. And he is essentially playing a broke and depressed version of Nicolas Cage. And it's kind of like, a, you know, uh, honing in on the, the idea that Nicolas Cage has spent the last maybe 15 years of his career taking on every role that was offered to him because he, you know, he, in real life, he has had some, you know, uh, bills to pay and he's had some, you know, tax debts and all the rest of it. But in this, he is, uh, he's, he's, he's kind of bummed out after he loses out on this dream role because this Nicolas Cage that we see in the film is, is, you know, he's, he's kind of happy, you know, taking on all of these parts, but he wants to be a movie star again. He wants to have the, you know, the rock and con air glory days back. Um, so after he loses out on this, you know, what he thinks is a big comeback role, he thinks that's it. I'm done with acting, but before I'm, I, but before I finish, his agent says, "There's a gig here. You've been offered one million dollars to attend a very wealthy superfan's birthday bash in Mallorca, and that's where Pedro Pascal comes in. So he is the wealthy superfan. His name is Javier Gutierrez, and Nicolas Cage, you know, he's all over the shop. So he decides to get on a plane, head to Mallorca, and basically just, you know, wine and dine himself and indulge in all of this wealthy superfan's, you know, um, uh, food and drink for a week." They actually, you know, start to form a bit of a bond and they become, you know, best pals and they go boozing together. They start talking about making a movie together. And then out of nowhere, he is suddenly, Nicholas Case, that is, recruited by these waspy CIA agents played by Tiffany Haddish and like Bernholtz. And they inform Cage, as Cage, <laughs> that, you know, his new wealthy super friend is no ordinary wealthy super friend, but instead a dangerous arms dealer. And they want Nicholas Cage to employ every kind of trick and every kind of, you know, uh, skill he might have uh, picked up by playing all these action heroes for years to use all of them and to help him, you know, take down this arms dealer. It's a bonkers premise. It sounds like it's somewhere... Uh, in between Harry Crumb, that old John Candy film, and the interview, that horrendous flick that starred James Franco and Seth Rogen. Before we talk about 
Nick Cage's latest endeavor, which again, he's on his comeback trail of late, uh, good old Cage, the unbearable weight of massive talent is the title. Let's just take a little bit from it. What did he say? He says he loves you, but he went in a different direction. I'm done. I'm quitting acting. Oh, man, I'm driving through the hills. I'm sorry. One more time. We got another offer. It's a million bucks. It's to attend a wealthy gentleman's birthday party. The guy that owns this house, what's his name? Javi. Javi. Mr. Cage. Excuse me. Is Javi going to want me to, uh, you know? I'm not sure I understand. Look, it's Javi. I am Javi. Nick Cage. So there is a little bit from the unbearable weight of massive talent starring Nicolas Cage as Nicolas Cage. Uh, Olivia, I love the premise to this. I think it is absolutely madcap and it's totally in fitting with Nicolas Cage. And there's something almost self-deprecating about it because it's almost like him poking fun at the fact that he has churned out an awful lot of muck because he had to pay the IRS a crazy amount of money. How he got himself into that level of debt is still beyond me. But it, it's almost like he's having fun at the last few years and he's not taking himself seriously. And this seems like a bit of a, a screwball style comedy all in all. I think this is like nearly the perfect weekend fodder for pizza and beers. So for you, what was it like seeing Nicolas Cage playing himself? Oh, it was a joy, I have to admit. It, it, for me, it was a case of I don't think any other actor could probably have have done this film like except for Nicolas Cage. Like I know it was written with him in mind, but honest to God, it was the perfect storm. And even then it had a few qualities that I would liken to Vampire's Kiss as well in there um, with certain scenes that I won't spoil, but it definitely had a few moments there where I was just like, it had that like corniness to it, but it wasn't woeful corniness. It was still enjoyable. It was still in theme with what was sort of going on. So it worked. It worked really well. It's, it is bonkers. And as like, I have to say, kudos to Chris. So the only compliment I'm going to give him this episode for trying to um, summarize what the plot is, because it is, it's just absolutely bonkers. And it goes kind of from zero to 90 at one point, which is a bit of a jolt as a viewer, but then you're kind of just right back in it. Um, and you, it sort of flows a little bit smoother from then on. Um, but yeah, like aside from one extremely cringy moment during the daughter's birthday party towards the beginning of the film, um, otherwise it was thoroughly enjoyable. And I was really surprised by it because I didn't expect to enjoy it as much as I did, because with these types of things, you hear the critics sometimes saying, oh, like this is Nick Cage back at his best. It's like, actually, that's exactly what it is. I thought he was really good. And Pedro Pascal just looking lovingly at him, just being like, oh, I'm with Nicolas Cage, knowing that he's a massive Nick Cage fan. Just, I just thought it was the most meta, meta film ever. Yeah, this film, I, I, when I think of other movies that have tried to do a fictionalized version of actors playing themselves, I'm thinking of... Um, a cock and bull story which starred Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon uh, but then again that was a, a kind of a yeah probably no farcical territory but a, but but not maybe as obviously as out there as the unbearable weight of massive talent Chris the other thing that strikes me about this film is that it might be a bit tonely all over the place um, can you talk to me a bit about that and how the, did you feel that as you were watching it that it just swung from one extreme to the other Oh, yeah, it is totally all over the shop. Um, I mean, the, for me, the worst thing about this film is the plot. Because if you just told me that, hey, Nick Cage is going to play a fictionalized version of himself, I'm in. 
I'm absolutely in. I, I I would like to see that. I don't know if I want to see a film that's nearly two hours long, which this thing nearly is, and where you know it kind of wears at that punchline. But we'll come back to that. If if you just kept things simple, uh, have this drama about you know an actor who's dissatisfied with his career and wants to you know. Uh, be more selective about his film roles who kind of you know takes his craft a little bit too seriously you know if he if he was going in and out of auditions we see him kind of you know practicing even like at ho- all of that kind of stuff I would love to see and that could have made for 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 quite an original and an inventive comedy all of the action stuff here it's far too routine it's a little too formulaic it's quite it's quite dull as well and I thought you know to go from you know there are scenes where Nick Cage is being told by his fictional wife, played by Sharon Horgan here. And I must admit, I didn't know Sharon Horgan was in this thing until, you know, I, you know, I, I saw her in it. Um, and her character's but, name is Olivia. And her character's name is Olivia. <laughs> and, you know, there are scenes where she's telling, you know, Nick Cage is Nick Cage that, you know, he really needs to, you know, get his act together and that he needs to be a better father to his fictional, you know, uh, teenage daughter in this film. Um, because again, the, the whole personal life of Nick Cage as Nick Cage in this it is all fictional that what, what, what we're seeing anyway it goes from that to you know with 20 minutes later pedro pascal and nick cage you know taking lsd together and legging it around mallorca and getting up to all of these mad insane adventures and kind of telling each other jokes that don't really make any sense and you're just like what what, what are we going here for here lads this is this is getting quite confusing so i did find it quite muddled um and i did you know again it's just the plot got in the way um, and I thought it's nice to see, you know, Nick Cage, you know, he, he does embrace the lunacy and, you know, everyone here is trying to maybe do something different, you know, trying to make this meta film work. Um, but I just thought I found the whole exercise quite clumsy and, 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 and very choppy. There are scenes that just ends when you think, oh, and, and, and you think to yourself, wait, what happened there? What, what, what happened to that character? And anything involving Ike Barinholtz and Tiffany Haddish was very chopped up, quite messy. And I thought, did something go wrong in the editing suite here? You know, there, there, there are things that happen that don't really make any sense. So I'm thinking, did that have, you know, 10 seconds beforehand that got chopped? Were we supposed to see something else there? And also the ending, I'm not going to give anything away, but this thing doesn't really have an ending. And it kind of cheats itself out of a conclusion because there's so much happening that it's almost as though Tom Gormigan, who's the uh, co-writer and director here, and his team just went, we have no idea what to do. You know, we've no idea how to wrap this thing up. Hopefully the audience will be distracted by all of the noise that, that they, they won't realize that we never really did. So I thought the oh, whole no. thing was a bit of a mess, to be honest. I, I, I love the idea and I quite like everyone's you know, in, in enthusiasm. And I think everyone was working hard here to create something a little bit different. But it does bear all the hallmarks of a, of a comedy sketch that got way out of hand. Now, you know, there's a movie that I have a real soft spot for. And it, it kind of played like one of the old BBC comic strips in that it felt more like it'd be better suited to like an hour long as opposed to an hour and a half was Mindhorn, which is currently on Disney Plus. I love that. It, 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 there's, it, and I'd love to see more of it. I'd love to see TV series. We had Simon Farnaby on the show uh, a few weeks ago for the Phantom of the Open. And I did bring up Mindhorn with him and how I would love to see a TV series about that, that character. Because it just, it, it is a little a little cult gem. And I unfortunately didn't get to see, they probably didn't probably get the, the big audience that they probably hoped for. But anywho, again, it kept that story pretty simple. Um, about this sort of bumbling actor who's fallen on hard times and uh, here's a shot of possible redemption for him by uh, arriving on an island to try and essentially uh, find this uh, this killer. But anyway, uh, Olivia, what did you think about um, what Chris had to say that there's need too much plot, plot going on? Could they take in a leaf out of Minehorn and maybe kept it a bit more simple? 
Yeah, they probably could. But at the end of the day, I actually sort of took it more as a satirical take on what they were doing. So as much as there was already a satire, they even took it to another level to be like, I know we're going to actually just take the mick out of all of this other sort of style genre. So yeah, like there being suddenly like a, a high speed chase and the Jeeps and things like that. Like it yeah okay was it necessary no was it kind of funny it's like yeah it's just like this thing is just it's just supposed to be crazy stupid and that's what I took it as it's like oh yeah of course this is what they're doing oh yeah of course now they're on this big LSD trip oh yeah of course they're trying to like jump up over a wall and it's like <laughs> it's almost like the Simpsons gag of oh yeah women they just can never they can never do the wall there's always a door <laughs> they never see the door <laughs> and it's that kind of like a running a running joke so it is I just sort of took it more as yeah, they were just taking the piss out of it all, except, you know. Does this film, because it's a bit madcap, did it need to have someone like, say, a Terry Gilliam behind the camera to almost give it that uh, fearing loathing, fear and loathing in Las Vegas sort of vibe, Chris? Potentially, yeah. I mean, I, I don't really know that much about Tom Gormkin, um, the, 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 the chap who, who, who devised this story. But I do know that Nick Cage, when he was first approached, uh, you know, or he was first offered the chance. Also, I would love to have heard that conversation. Hey, Nick, do you want to play yourself? Uh, you know, so obviously <laughs> it took a while. And I think there was three or four times when Tom Gormkin tried to convince Nicolas Cage and eventually just put it in a letter. First of all, saying, you know, kind of uh, almost like, you know, the, not quite as extreme as the character Pedro, Pedro Pascal is playing here, but a letter saying, you know, I'm a big fan of yours and this is something that I think we could treat, you know, with respect, with intelligence, with wit. And I, the, it, I'd say it was, you know, well-intentioned at the beginning, but you do need something after that, you know, after the I, I, I idea is put forward, you need to kind of stick to your guns and say, here is something bonkers, here is meta, here, you know, we are through the looking glass which, with this idea don't turn it into a formulaic routine action film. As I said, stick with the bonkers stuff. And okay. if anything, I think that this film, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't ever, you know, match, you know, it's only, it, it, it never follows through on its ambition basically. And I wanted it to be weirder. I wanted it to be, you know, ballsier. I wanted it to be noisier, but instead, and it is quite noisy, but instead it's just, it's just another action movie with Nick Cage in it. Okay. So let's get scores out of 10 because I want to move on to North, the Northman next. Olivia out of 10 for, now, bear with me on the title, because this one does not roll off the tongue easy <laughs> at all. The unbearable weight of massive talent starring Nicolas Cage. What are we giving it out of 10? I'd give it a solid seven. It's a great one to go see with your mates and like have a few have a few drinks and a bit of popcorn and a, and a laugh. Beers may be required for this one. If that is your poison, Chris, for you out of 10. Oh, a lot of beers. Probably it probably would have been better with a few beers. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to go with four out of ten. You know, look, I thought, look, I can, I can forgive it for being a bad film, but I can't forgive it for being a dull one, and that's what it is. Oh, okay, right. Interesting to get your thoughts if you've seen it this week. Uh, go down to Twitter. I just include the hashtag We Love Movies. What did you think of the unbearable weight of massive talent? Uh, let us move on to the Northman. As you know, it's currently out in cinemas, but we've yet to review it. Before we chat about it, here's a little bit from it. Why would you stow away to such a hellish place? To find what was stolen from me. What is that? The kingdom. You must choose between kindness for your kin or hate for your enemies. Your strength breaks men's bones. I have the cunning to break their minds. 
Night by night, we will carry out my pledge of vengeance. I will avenge you, Father. I will avenge you, Father. Now, the Northman, I am seeing like five stars. Like, I mean, people just can't seem to hold back. Now, when it comes to the critics, that is, you know, I mean, they seem very much in favour of uh, Robert Eggers' latest uh, film, which he shot in Belfast. And then there's others that feel maybe it's just a little bit too out there and a little bit weird. Olivia, uh, The Northman, is it worthy of the five star reviews that's been getting? Um, unfortunately, you're asking the wrong person because I have actually not seen it ah, yet. Well, do you know what? We're <laughs> but it's start- one. Actually, you're going to do- I'll start that again. Sorry, Olivia. <laughs> it's okay. uh, I will throw that. Cre- <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I could try and like bluff my way through that, no. but everybody will know damn well that I haven't seen it. <laughs> no, don't you worry. I will. Uh, do you know what? I'll come. I, I, do you know what we'll do? I'll go. Um, I'll, I'll probably spend more time with Chris on this one and then, then, then Dumbledore with yourself. That's they're kind of even it all out. Okay. Because <laughs> Chris and I see, th- think very similarly on Dumbledore. So that oh, yeah. works. Yeah. Ah, sound. Okay, perfect. Oh, Chris, now you know what I'm going to be asking you. So here we go. Three, two, one. So there is a little bit from The Northman, which I have to say, I cannot wait to see it. And it is very much on my watch list because I love a good Viking movie and especially one that is as blood splattery as this one is meant to be. Critics are falling over themselves. But then at the same time, Chris, I'm also hearing people a bit like, oh, it's a bit weird. It's a bit out there. But it wasn't the type of film I was expecting. So where did this one land for you? Uh, it's about as it's probably the best film that I've seen this year. That's where it's landed for me. Now, I do get the idea that some people might come away from, you know, the Northman thinking, well, that was a bit bonkers and it was a lot of times and it's not quite. I saw this tagline, Gordon, at one stage that says, you know, it's this generation's uh, gladiator. And I'm thinking, yeah, it kind of does have an awful lot in common. You know, you can I could totally see Ridley Scott tackling, you know, the, the Scandinavian legend of Amnes. But I don't think he would have gone full on bonkers and and as and as extreme with the violence as Robert Eggers has here. Uh, so they're, they're, those are two things that are maybe turning people off: the extreme violence and the fact that it's a bit weird. Well, t- to answer that, first of all, I don't know how you can tell a Viking revenge story. This is a Norse revenge epic. How you can do that without having you know the extreme levels of violence in it and i don't think for a minute that the the, that the violence is ever too gratuitous it's just showing us you know this is a very violent time it's a violent act. like we're going we're going to be as authentic as possible and on the other side it's a robert eggers film robert eggers the last two films that he made this is his third third feature you know they were lo-fi left field art house films one of mm. them was you know kind of a a, a a a a pagan horror the witch with anya taylor joy the other being you know the completely you know um, bonkers to, to use that word again uh, uh the lighthouse with robert pattinson as william defoe as two lighthouse keepers who are stranded together and slowly start to lose their minds at one another the new um, england folktale i think he was kind of was that what the he was trying to nearly pitch it as i was that yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know many New England folk tales, but there you go. <laughs> um, but no, but no, but the, the this 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 worked for me on nearly every level. I mean, you'll be familiar with the setup. It is the Scandinavian legend, which actually inspired uh, William Shakespeare's Hamlet. Um, and the setup is, you know, you are taking a legend that can be quite complicated. But what I, I, I admire is that Robert Eggers has made it as simple as possible. 
Nordic Warrior King, played by Ethan Hawke. He returns from battle. He's been off, you know, doing all the sorts of Viking stuff. And he comes back to his home with one thing on his mind, which is to prepare his young for, for the throne. And as he's doing that, you know the story. He's then murdered by his treacherous brother. That's Clay's Bang, a Fjorner. Um, you know, Clay's Bang's uh, Fjorner then uh, moves in on Cole Kidman playing Amlet's uh, 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 poor, poor mother. And you basically have the young for Amlet fleeing his home and swearing, you know, he's on this boat and he says to himself, I will come back and I will avenge my father's death. I will save my mother and I will kill Fiona. Well, luckily for him and then luckily for everyone else, he comes back in the form of Alexander Skarsgård, who in this film, you know, I mean, his muscles have muscles and he, you know, he's, he's this just mountain of a man that could stop a bear in its tracks. And he has this simple plan, which is to kind of, you know, pose as a slave to uh, go to, 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 to Fjorner's land where he's had this big family with, uh, with Amlet's mother and to slowly kind of just like take his family and take his, you know, small kingdom apart from the, from the inside out. And along the way also he, he, he falls for a sorceress played by Anya Taylor-Joy. So that's a very simple setup. In terms of the execution, the execution is every bit as weird as every other Robert Eggers film. I mean, it's nice to see that Robert Eggers with a $90 million budget hasn't lost, you know, his trademark eccentricity. There are things in here like, you know, Willem Dafoe dancing around the place as a as a as a very unsettling jester. You've got Bjork playing this seeress. You've got all of these uh, nightmarish uh, um, and at times Shakespearean type uh, like visions that Amleth has in the middle of kind of, you know, gutting people with his axe. But then you also have this explosive and extraordinarily well staged action film happening there so i think there's there's an awful lot there for mainstream audiences but enough also to suggest that robert eggers hasn't despite the fact that he's working with a major studio and a hell of a lot more money than he was given on his previous two films that he hasn't lost his own edge as a storyteller and as a filmmaker oh i can't wait to see it chris out of 10 what are we giving the northman I'm going to go for the full 10. As I said, I think it's 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 beautifully staged. Uh, the sound design is something else. Um, it looks beautiful. For a film that is as unsettling and as disturbing and as violent as it is, it just looks stunning. And I think all of the performance brought their A game very quickly. Alexander Skarsgård, this is the best he has ever been. I mean, there are times when his character, it's, it's, it's almost, he makes it impossible, Eggers that is, makes it impossible for you to fully root for Amleth. Some of his morals and some of his actions are, are quite questionable, mm. but you, I, I couldn't take my eyes off Skarsgård. I thought he was just incredible in this. So the full 10. I think for Skarsgård, he's like, he's obviously been in some whole pro, high profile pictures, but it, unfortunately, I don't know what it, it is about them that unfortunately he seems to fade into the background. You think of the legend of Tarzan, even in that recent Kong versus Godzilla, whatever, you know, of course, he was never going to be front and center in that. Then there was uh, the John Michael McDonough film. Do you remember that one he was in? Oh, it was the oh, film the, John uh, Michael made Michael after Pena, Calvary. Yeah, uh, yeah it, that just seemed to kind of disappear, to be perfectly honest with you. So hopefully for Alexander Skarsgård, this might be the one to maybe pe- make people sit up and take notice of them. But f- very, very quickly, Chris, just one thing I wanted to ask just before we move on to the secrets of Dumbledore. Robert Eggers, there's a story going around that he didn't have final cut on this film, on The Northman. Is there any reason for that? Yeah, this story kind of confused me because he gave an interview to the Observer, Robert Eggers, that is, a few weeks ago. And he came across very well in it. And he did say at one stage that, you know, look, it's 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 part and parcel of, of the industry that test screenings happen. I mean, you remember we were talking a few weeks back about how we're not really sure what's going to happen with this new Doctor Strange film because there's been talk of reshoots. 
there, every film uh, uh, that 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 has you know a substantial budget always has reshoots close to close to uh, release, and there might be some sort of like change, or you know there might be some sort of test screening with 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 that you know like questions will come back over you know how can we improve this film? Basically, with the Northman, there seems to be the case that you know there was a test screening, there was some suggestions made, and Eggers you know kind of had to maybe work that a little bit harder in the editing space. That's fine. I think he was going from something so small like the lighthouse to a case of focused features and universal saying here's a hundred million dollars we might have some notes for you and he says that it was a stressful experience but at the same time the cut we're seeing in cinemas is his director's cut it is the film that he set out to make but then there are other interviews coming in over the last week gordon where it's saying no he didn't have final cut so i'm not really sure that's a very long answer for saying i'm not really sure what happened but what i will say is he should be, I hope that he's happy and proud of this version because it does look and sound like the best version that he could possibly make. And I would be very surprised if he came out now in a few weeks and said, actually, it's not. I wanted it to be totally different. Yeah. Oh, God. Well, listen, I cannot wait to see it. The Northman, 10 out of 10 from our Chris. We're going to move on now to Fantastic Beats. Fantastic Beasts, I should say. And The Secret of Dumbledore. Uh, Before we chat about it, here is a little bit from it. This is the team that's going to take down the most dangerous wizard in over a century. A magizoologist, his indispensable assistant. A wizard descended from a very old family, a school teacher, and a muggle. Dumbledore asked that I give you something, Jacob. Are you kidding me right now? So there is a little bit from the secret. Is, is it the secret or the secrets of Dumbledore? Maybe he's got a few L secrets there. You wouldn't know under his hat. Uh, Olivia, you brought yourself and Chris have seen this one, but you're going to leave the charge on it. Um, the Fantastic Beasts, you'd nearly be forgotten that that part of the title of the of the film is still there because it's they're really trying to go front and centre with the secrets of Dumbledore. I don't know if they're looking at this movie like a little bit of a soft reboot going on here because the last film... Uh, the Crimes of Grindelwald, which of course had Johnny Depp as the title character, that just came along and it, it felt very ponderous at times and very forgettable. But this whole series has felt a little bit forgettable, um, especially bearing in mind it's a spin-off to the Harry Potter world. So I'm I've, I've I've by and large I've seen an awful lot of tepid reviews for this film, and the box office seems to match it. Oh, like a hundred percent. And I think the way I described it initially was that like the fantastic beasts have taken a back seat to the secrets of Dumbledore in this installment. But you can even see it as as the franchise has gone on, is that you've been seeing more force, forcefully injected beasts just put into the plot um, when they maybe not were like necessary um, completely. But yeah, it's a completely different thing now um like i i for one think that they should be dropping the fantastic beasts uh, moniker from uh, the future films because as much as newt might still be involved this was a dumbledore film this was all about albus dumbledore versus geller grindelwald and it had very little to do with newt himself yes newt was leading the charge that uh, of the group that dumbledore had put together in order to help him try and prevent grindelwald from uh, following through on one of his plans and um, I'm just trying to also keep it <laughs> on the DL as to like what the actual plot is but even then there wasn't that much of a plot to begin with um, but yes now ov- overall it was uh, like 
for a film that's supposed to be about Newt Scamander and all of his fantastic beasts, it is now the Dumbledore Grindelwald duel and the build up to that and how the conflict within Dumbledore, because of course this is someone that he used to love, um, and how that is affecting him uh, on a grander scale. Then you're throwing in Credence uh, into the mix, who at the end of the last film, Grindelwald told him that he was actually a Dumbledore. So there's all of that kind of storyline going on as well. And it's just kind of trying to do too much all in the one thing when they could easily either put it into a HBO series or they could just split them all up and actually tell each story properly and give it the attention that it needs. But it doesn't seem like they're they're going to do that. And moving forward, like theoretically, there's supposed to be another two films uh, going into this franchise and coming out of this. And actually, I think I said it to Chris. It's like, we know that this is all the build up to the duel that gets Grindelwald put in uh, jail, not Azkaban, the other one. <laughs> and right. essentially, we're just like, is that going to happen at the end of the next film or is it going to happen in the, the, the final film? We don't know. But if there is going to be a whole other story that we're going to have to sit through in order to see that, then I'm not I, I'm not going to be looking forward to that myself, especially after this. This is the biggest filler film I've ever seen. Oh, dear. I, I always thought the fact that they announced there's going to be five films in this series. I thought, mm, really? Is there enough story there for five films? Because when that second film came out, I was like, oh, God, they felt very, very stretched. Do they reference the fact why Johnny Depp has is no longer in it? When I say he's no longer, of course, the, the Grindelwald characters in it, but the, the fact that he's been given a complete facelift and now it's Mads Mikkelsen. Because <laughs> in the first one, we had Colin... <laughs> Farrell and it, it's the rig reveal is aha he was Grindelwald all along and we get to see the back of Johnny Depp's head and I don't know like a time lore type of thing or it, it, does he suddenly change into Mads Mikkelsen I don't know what they could have done there or did they just decide ah, listen say nothing just just Mads Mikkelsen <laughs> is Grindelwald just keep going with it uh, how are they dealt with that as, as a matter of interest Chris um, they don't. <laughs> just, <laughs> just here's Mads Mikkelsen. Um, we'll refer to him as Grindelwald in the opening few minutes, and then you know, hopefully, you're 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 still with us. Um, that's about it. I mean, look, the benefits of having someone like Mads Mikkelsen portray the character is that you actually have you know a a, a strong, a better actor, uh, not just kind of you know this carnival-esque performer like like Johnny Depp playing the role and they've toned down everything you know his delivery his outfits even you know they've kind of gone a very different direction the, the, the third direction with this character which is hard to believe and um, they've gone a very different direction from, from the last film but there are still problems that exist that you had with the second film in this which is that it's it's far too busy and it, it's, it's quite ironic for a film as busy as it is it doesn't really know what it's at or what it's building towards. I mean, the first Fantastic Beast film, I had an awful lot of time for. It was unexpectedly good. You know, it was quite simple. It was quite charming. It played out like a, um, you know, like a screwball comedy, you know, this 1920s story of like, you know, this this uh, young academic, you know, struggling to kind of, you know, find all of the creatures that have, that have you know, just... Uh, escape from his magical beastly uh, uh, the suitcase that was pretty much it and he picks up some friends along the way what we've had ever since is just this dour and dismal attempt to continue the wizarding world by just introducing as many characters and subplots as possible so that in future and so that in you know over the next 10 years if warner had the money and if and, and if there was interest there they could have all of these different types of spin-offs that's 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 not storytelling it's it's mm. it's world building it's it's you know it's just kind of 
it's just stretching out this franchise so they can make you know more more money from it and and you can see right through it i mean this film i forgot about this film while i was watching it gordon it, oh, it is quite dull it's quite unfocused um you know there's no real kind of definitive hero newt scamander has gone from being you know the 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 the, the charming uh, oddball you know protagonist to you know a supporting character in his own franchise it doesn't really know what it's at and i just found the whole thing quite useless and it, it is disappointing because that first one that first one was was it was you know if you forgive the terrible point it was magical at this stage i think we're done with it and also very quickly i think we might actually be done with it because this latest film made something in the region of like 45 million at the u.s box office on its opening weekend compared to the 60 odd million that grindelwald made and then again compared to the 70 odd million that the one before it made so there is a steady decline there and i think warner brothers know they and warner brothers and jk rowland they might know this because without giving anything away you could finish the ending that this film gives us you could finish and you could actually say oh well you know five films that was just a conversation we actually intended to finish it on the third one so there is something Uh, there if they uh, wanted to close the curtain on it that is interesting god yeah will they will it continue with the five films olivia out of 10 what will you give the secrets of dumbledore uh, <laughs> three, three. Oh, dear Lord, dear Lord. But geez, for if that's the case, God, they might want to just knock this on the head. It'll be actually sorry. Just before we get your scores, Chris, Ezra Miller. Like, what are they <laughs> going to do with that fella? Like, oh, oh my God, he's been in more trouble in Hawaii. That man, like, like you think after the. I'm sorry, going off on a mad tangent here. You think you might just lay low, bearing in mind the his behavior, but no, he ends up throwing a chair at someone it's alleged. So is it, uh, well, I suppose from uh, the fantastic beast perspective, if they're going forward, they could obviously do a Mads Mikkelsen on it and, and get rid of him. But I, I think for the flash, they must be going, Oh dear God, what can we do? They can't really, they can't go back and reshoot that. No, not at all. Like it's there. It's far too far gone at this stage for them to, like, I, I think it's very lucky for them in a sense that they've already pushed it a year um, so they can kind of hope that things die down a little bit but uh, they there's rumours that they had a crisis meeting now they've come out and said that they that they didn't but other people were like no I was in the room there was a meeting um, so that they're saying that they've paused all of his future projects um, with the company and where that leads leaves the flash is essentially in limbo because I suppose depending on the outcome of these arrests will depend on what way are they going to do the flash but I think they've invested far too much money in it um, for it to a just go to streaming and b to be reshot like they're not going to be able to get Michael Keaton back in to reshoot all of his scenes they're not going to be able to get Ben Affleck back in to get do all of his scenes as well so yeah like the the, the poor thing he like there must be some uh, underlying issues there going on for it to have been so consistent over the last few weeks with him. Mm. But yeah, hopefully um, it'll all be sorted out for himself one way or the other. Just, you know, there's a resolve to it. Thanks so much, guys. Uh, Chris, finally, uh, just your scores out of 10 for Secrets of Dumbledore. Oh, look, four out of 10. And just let's four just forget about it and hopefully it's over. <laughs> God, the, the, the intake of groans from the pair of you. That alone was damning <laughs> before we got to the scores. Uh, Olivia, Chris, stay with us because um, after the break, we're going to look at some of your must-see films for the summer. 
We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden on Spin. Welcome back to We Love Movies with me, Gordon Hayden. Chris Wasser and Livia Fahey are still with me. We're now going to chat about some of the must-see films that are, is going to be hitting cinemas this summer. We have to talk about Thor, uh, the fourth installment. Olivia, I cannot wait to see this. Thor, God of Love and Thunder. What did you think of the teaser trailer? Oh, I thought it was brilliant in the way that because I actually sat down and of course, like for my job, I dissect all of these trailers and look for all of the cool like little details and throwbacks and Easter eggs and things like that. And it was like, even though it essentially told us very little about what's actually going on, it still gave us a lot to think about. So when I was going through it, I spotted that there was a a neon sign on the ship as it's flying off um, over New Asgard. And that is the sign of like Cocktails and Dreams from Cocktail, the movie with uh, Tom Cruise. There's all of these other like little fun things. And then there's a couple of shots that are like direct copies from the comic books that it's taking inspiration from. So even though we didn't actually see Christian Bale's Gore the God Butcher, um, you do actually get a bit of a hint as to the direction of, of it, like where it's going with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought it was a very good way of, of showing us a, a taste, a teaser, shall we say, um, without spoiling anything. Okay. Um, Elvis is another film which is coming out, Chris. Baz Luhrmann is the director of it. And it, again, you're, you're, you're imagining a real sumptuous affair there. Trailer looks strong. Tom Hanks is playing the Colonel. In, in terms of biopics, though, how do you think tonally this is going to go? Is it going to be our, our, our typical type of biopic or are we going to have those flights of fancy? Oh, I definitely think flights of fancy. Yeah. I mean, like Baz Luhrmann doesn't do things by halves and, you know, his films are, they're, they're huge. They're bombastic. They're, you know, they're almost uh, like some, some, some of his best films, they kind of play it like a, like a blueprint for a stage musical. And I, and I'd say Elvis is, is it, it, it won't be an exception. Um, I am looking forward to seeing Austin Butler as Elvis Presley, not, a, you know, not an, an obvious choice uh, compared to maybe some of the other, uh, the other names that were in the hat when, when the film was being discussed and, and, and being developed. Uh, and I think Tom Hanks, may possibly be a distraction as the colonel as tom parker um you know the 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 conniving manager um it could go either way uh but at the same time it is nice that you know uh this film is has been kind of marketed and billed as a as a a summer blockbuster as opposed to awards bait i thought i didn't think we were we were getting it until until the end of the year and baz Luhrmann, despite the fact that you know look it's it's been a while what's the last thing that baz Luhrmann had Oh, that's a very good question. I know there was a Netflix <laughs> series that he did, but I'm going to take it pop at Gatsby. Was Gatsby the last film that he made? I, oh. It very well could be. I'm, I'm going to hit my... uh, IMDb very quickly. <laughs> Olivia, while you're doing that right, um, I'm going to uh, dovetail into another film and then we'll come back uh, to the answer. Um, Jurassic World Dominion, which is essentially the last film in the Jurassic Park World series, Chris. Yeah, uh, it's Jurassic. It's it's Jurassic Park greatest hits. That's that's exactly what we're getting. And the trailer makes it look just unbelievably stuffed. All of the characters, like you've got the original, you know, Trinity, if you want to call them that, back together. You got Sam Neill, Jeff Goldblum, Laura Dern, and then you've got Chris Pratt and uh, Bryce Dallas Bryce Howard. Da- Bryce Dallas Howard, and all of your favorite characters from the Jurassic World franchise. All of your favorite dinosaurs. All of your least favorite dinosaurs. And it just looks like there is carnage. One thing that I hope this film does not do is you remember when the last Jurassic World film and it was billed as, you know, Jeff Goldblum's big comeback, he was at the beginning for a minute and he was at the end for a minute. Mm. And I don't know how much he got paid on that film, but I'd say, you know, 
<laughs> like, like they, they lied to us. I hope it's just not this case where it's like we're going to bring everyone in just for like 20 minutes at the end and maybe five minutes at the beginning. No, if you're going to give us a, a film where you're bringing together 20 years of a franchise that I can't believe still has legs, just go for it. Just go mm. for leather. And I hope that this thing is entertaining above everything else. Like, you know, it could be it might be all over the place. But look, if it entertains us, grand. Great stuff. Look, yeah, it, it'll probably do gangbusters, bearing in mind it's the, the last one in the series. Olivia, back to all things Elvis. And we uh, the question posed was, what was the last thing that Baz Luhrmann directed? Was it Gatsby? Great Gatsby? His last feature film does appear to be The Great Gatsby. He also worked on the Chanel number no. 5, The One That I Want commercial, The oh, Get yeah. Down, which was the Netflix series, and Airdem um, H&M collection, The Secret Life of Flowers in 2017. Huh. So, so that's still a long time ago for the last thing that he officially directed. Oh, so when did The Great Gatsby come out again? 2013. Oh, 2013, wow. wow. Gee, so nearly Max. 10 years since a feature film by Baz Luhrmann has hit the big, big screen. Oh, well, listen, thanks for that. Um, I want to bring in uh, Jordan Peel now, not that, that he's joined us here now on Zoom, but uh, <laughs> the fact that Nope is coming out. And um, I, he's not with us this week, but uh, Andy was saying that it's basically an anagram for not of planet Earth, I think. So that's been uh, batted around. Uh, and I think from the trailer, you can kind of get that, that whatever the, the, there's a... There is some presence that is in the sky that looks like a very ominous cloud, but doesn't look like it's a, cra- a, a cloud that's going to dump down on you. So, Olivia, is that kind of where we're at? It's essentially like an alien movie or is it more supernatural, do you think? I think it's going to be a bit of both. Like, I think with Jordan Peele, you never really know what direction it is going to go in. All we know is that we're going to be glued to the screen and going, oh, oh, that's what you've done. Because that's what's happened with his past two films. So I don't see why this would be any different. It like It's not usually a genre that I get excited about, but I'm still actually quite curious and looking forward to seeing what Nope actually has to offer. Uh, just looking at um, another film here, uh, Chris, that... I'm a little bit, I don't know where, where the crawdads sing. What in the name of God is that about? Yeah, where the crawdads sing. Um, I think uh, there is a, a huge push behind this because it's the latest um, uh, production from Reese Witherspoon's Hello Sunshine. And also the fact that it's got Daisy Edgar Jones in it, who is riding high off the back of uh, uh, normal people still, but also uh, an acclaimed performance in the Disney Plus uh, thriller with Sebastian Stan Fresh. Uh, which, if you've seen it, is a film that uh, you probably shouldn't talk about to anyone else who hasn't seen it. <laughs> it, it seems oh. like a, a very quirky kind of a, a commentary on, 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 on modern dating to begin with, and then it goes very, it, it goes to some very dark places. Where the crowd that's saying it's actually based on a bestseller by Delia Owens, and it's it's a, um, a terrific story. It's about a uh, a girl in the 1950s who uh, all of a sudden is entangled in this murder trial and is accused and charged with, with the murder of a fellow who once pursued her. And you know there is enough evidence to suggest that you know she is responsible for his death, but she you know uh, uh, pushes back and says I did not do this. So it's a a, a murder mystery. Uh, in in North Carolina, some great talent in there. You've got uh, 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 Anna O'Reilly. You've got Taylor John Smith, uh, David Strathairn, and obviously Daisy Edgar Jones uh, leading the way. Um, yeah, it could be um, a surprise sleeperhead of the summer. Excellent stuff. To, there you go. I never heard of that one, but that is coming our way this summer. It's called Where the Crawdads Sing. And finally, finally, both of you have this on your list. Um, is Bullet Train, and they've been going hell for leather now with the trailer to this 
And do we have, um, oh God, his name, John Wick director, did the first one, Deadpool 2. Uh, Leach. What's his, what's his first name again? Sorry, Chris. David Leach. David Leach. There we go. So he's the director. He's kind of like the go-to action director at the moment. And Brad Pitt's in this, all set on one of the famous uh, Japanese bullet trains. It kind of looks like Olivia, though, like Guy Ritchie, though. There's kind of a Guy Ritchie bang off it. I suppose now that you've said it, yeah, but I wouldn't have picked up on that myself. I was just too, I, I was too busy just laughing my ass off watching the trailer because it's not a film that we're used to seeing Brad Pitt in. But yeah, do you know what? He's actually not that bad at the old um, uh, action sort of comedy style. And we got a little bit of a glimpse of that in The Lost City. Like his character was actually one of the highlights of The Lost City recently. Um, but yeah, it's, it's something that because it's all contained on the train as well, it's going to be interesting to see how they can actually like vary it up uh, throughout the entire film. Um, but with Aaron Taylor Johnson involved as well and a couple of other really well-known faces sort of ducking in and out, uh, it just seems like it could be a surprise hit. A bit like um, Free Guy, as much as like the plot seemed a little bit stupid, it was a great film, whereas this could also go one way or the other. So I'm, I'm really curious to see what, what they've actually created. And I really hope that it is on the good side of the, the tracks. Oh yeah. I, I put this, that's a fabulous pun. Um, <laughs> I, I put this on, on, on my list, Gordon, purely based on Brad Pitt's cameo in the lost city with Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum. He is in that thing just for a few minutes, but he is playing this almost like, you know, trained assassin figure and, and this human tracker who gets, you know, ordinary people out of extraordinary circumstances. And okay. he is playing this action comedic role that requires him to kind of, you know, cash in on his, you know, smoldering looks that he gives, you know, and also, you know, these, these, these <laughs> nonsensical one-liners that still made me just like hell with laughter. And I was thinking, okay, so that's, David Leach has kind of made this what looks like an action comedy with a very big budget that where Brad Pitt plays this assassin who is kind of going in for the one last job before retirement. And you've got this great supporting cast with Michael Shannon, Logan Lerman and Aaron Taylor Johnson. I mean, if Brad Pitt is in any way going to give us a hint of, you know, the, you know, entertainment value that he that he, that he served up in The Lost City, I'm totally in. Great stuff. There is a pick of some of the flicks this summer. And we should also give an honorable mention to Lightyear, which is... Another take on Buzz Lightyear, but almost imagining if the character was real and that the adventures of Buzz Lightyear were real as opposed to the toy version. I'll let, I'll let that sit with you. That's coming out in June this year. But as always, Olivia Fahey, Chris Wasser, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it as always. Always, uh, Tom has caught up with us on this week's We Love Movies. We've got to get out of here, but we will chat to you again next Sunday from 8 right here on Spin.